0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, we have some good news. The 2020 election will liberate us from Donald Trump and Republican hegemony. For our last show of the year, we're featuring some of our favorite segments from 2019, starting with Democratic strategist and pollster Stan Greenberg. Also, the white nationalist movement. Terrorist attacks are treated as single events in El Paso and Pittsburgh and Charleston. Some are defined as anti-immigrant or anti-Semitic or racist or anti-Muslim. The only commonalities we hear about among the killers are terrible childhoods and assault weapons. But these attacks are connected. Kathleen Ballou will explain. She's the author of the book Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. Plus, Stacey Abrams. She was the first African American and the first woman to win a major party nomination to run for governor in Georgia. And last year, she almost won that election. A lot of us think she would have won if the count had been fair and if her opponent had not engaged in massive voter suppression. We spoke with her about it and about her life last March. But first, the good news about what's going to happen to Donald Trump in 2020... Trump Watch starts right now. First up, some good news. A sweeping Democratic victory will make it possible at last for us to address our most serious problems because 2020 will bring the death of the Republican Party as we've known it. That's what Stan Greenberg says. He's a longtime pollster and advisor to presidents from Clinton to Obama. He's also a best-selling author with a new book out. It has the wonderful title, R-I-P-G-O-P, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan Greenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, everybody agrees that the political divide in America is deeper today than ever before. The middle ground has disappeared. You took about what you call the new America, younger people, women, especially single women, people of color, secular, urban, college-educated people. That's the new America. And then there's the Republican Party. Who exactly did they mobilize?
1: The key to, to Trump you know, winning was the fact that he built his base with the Tea Party um, inside the Republican Party. That's how, he, you know, that's how he got the nomination. He built an alliance with evangelicals. And that gave him about half the party you look at the primary. About half the voters were with him. But it was, it was a party divided and genuinely split, you know, with the rest of the party with McCain, you know, McCain secular conservatives uh, and moderates who were socially liberal. He, you know, he won the, the Tea Party base because he, he hated the, the, uh, the changes we're talking about more than anyone else. He showed how much he hated Obama. He was a birther. And he battled He battled against the New America. He showed he qualified to leave this party. But it meant throwing himself off a, off a cliff, running in the most extreme possible way against government, against immigration, ultimately um, as, as a social conservative. But he was leading a smaller and smaller party. And so if you look right now, He's driven out the the social conserv the secular conservatives, the moderates in like we have a ten point shift since twenty eighteen as he's driven those voters out. But he now has a seventy percent base. He had half before, but now the party has defined his base seventy percent of the party. He's become more and more extreme, more and more anti government, more and more anti you know, anti immigration. Um, and as a result Producing trends that uh, make the Democratic win even more or less.
0: I want to go back just for a minute to 2016 and Hillary's unexpected loss, which I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about. We all have. I think probably your most important chapter in your book, RIP GOP, is about why Hillary lost. The 2016 election should not have been close. Why did she lose? How could the Democrats lose Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin?
1: A tragedy, obviously. Uh, didn't campaign there; they didn't respect working people there. This was a campaign that declined to make working people or the economy uh, center stage. She, uh, in in her book, she says, "Stan was critical that that I didn't, you know, wasn't tough enough on the economy." And I talked to the economy all the time. She said. I was definitely wrong in that The economy was like central to what I was talking about. Well, the problem wasn't she wasn't talking about it; it was what she was saying. Um, she said, like President Obama, build on the build on the progress. And they saw an economy that was uh, that was moving in the right direction. Jobs have been created, you know, incomes up, poverty coming down. That's you know, that's just she closed her election. Now we, you know. One had no idea that she you know, would close the campaign with this idea that we were this was a, we were building on success. We were got rid of the whole idea that we were changed. We were totally status quo, and you know she ran on, on continuity. Uh, and that, uh, but what we find is that President Obama, almost everybody living in the metropolitan areas, missed what was happening over that decade. Not you, obviously, and not us. Uh, But since the financial crisis, loss of wealth, loss of income, created a country where where the leaders continually just misjudge uh, what's happening in the country, including President Trump, you know, who will be defeated again on, you know, talking up how good the economy is and how good wages are. No, they're big structural changes. Um, that
0: demand change. You have some unforgettable data in your book, uh, R.I.P.G.O.P. The one that struck me was uh, on this issue of understanding working-class people. How many unmarried women cannot pay for an emergency that would cost five hundred dollars? You say it's a majority. A majority of unmarried women cannot pay five hundred dollars if an emergency came up. That's right. I you
1: know I I actually. Put that graph, you know, right up front in that chapter. But I also put it right up front after they lost um, in the in the poll I did right after the election. When I would say, "Build on the progress," what are you talking about? <laughs> the people who are the most vulnerable. But keep in mind, a quarter of the electorate is not a small section. When we're talking about unmarried women, you know, who can't who can't afford a five hundred dollars. And that's why they were responsive to, to leaders who were, who understood you know, who understood that despair.
0: So the new America reemerged in 2018 in the midterm elections, with you know voters mobilized by outrage about Trump. You think that mobilization will continue in November 2020? But aren't midterm elections usually quite different from presidential elections?
1: You know, life has been changed by. Uh, by President Trump, you know, just as I got up every day to write, uh, write this book, people got involved all across, you know, across the uh, the country and organizations. The resistance, indeed, I dedicate the book to the resistance and, you know, and to the women's of March, uh, you know, where this started. And that's actually what's so different and why the rising American electorate and the inevitability of demographics, is a different different phenomena that we're a different country. That is, people are organizing. They're active. They're becoming conscious, and that's what you know what happened is that Trump's uh, Trump's election produced a new consciousness, engagement.
0: You have some other very important data about current public opinion on two crucial political questions: should the government be more active in addressing our problems, and Immigra- immigration benefits the country. Agree or disagree? These are, of course, Trump's two central themes. What's the evidence on what Americans think about this right now?
1: On whether government should be uh, more involved or whether uh, we should depend on individuals and business, we've seen the surge of people wanting the government to be active uh, to do uh, to do more. You know, over sixty percent is the opposite of what is happening. And the other is immigration. Uh, when Trump was elected, half the country said immigr- uh, immigration benefits the country. That's now jumped to 65%. And we're tracking new polling. It's showing it increasing every day. But the other is them being engaged. The off-year election in 2018 was the highest turnout in the history of off-year elections. We have a measure on a 1 to 10 scale, how closely you're follow- following politics, 10 being You're following it extremely, you know, extremely close. Ten on that scale in 2018 in November hit the highest point that we had reached. This was the highest turnout election. It matched the presidential number we had in 16, which had been the highest. But after the election, in every election in any poll I've ever done, that number goes down. People pull back and then come back month after month, and then it goes up again at the very end. Well, that number has gone up 10 points since the 18th election. Wow.
0: There's
1: been a 10-point increase in engagement since the 18th election. So people become have a more engaged, more consolidated behind the Democrats, more pro-immigration every day, more pro-government every day they watch.
0: Okay, so we have increasing... Mobilization. We have the inevitability of the demographic forces that are benefiting the Democratic Party, but we also have divisions in the Democratic Party. You know all about the divisions in the Democratic Party. Tell us about what the big ones are right now.
1: Uh, I think partly the elites aren't reading uh, the the country and aren't reading the Democrats right. Every time there's a debate, you know you have you know the fraught commentary. On oh my God, we're driving away moderate voters. You know we're running for you know the uh, the base, and therefore we're going to lose independence. But that's missing what happened after this uh, uh, 2018. It's also but it's also missing the fact that Democrats have become more, you know more determined that government play a large role, but so have all voters, and there's now huge amount of support for government playing a you know a bigger role. Dealing with the environment, dealing with climate, climate change, dealing with inequality, dealing with health care, even within, within the health care debate, you know, on the debate stage, everybody, indeed including Biden, was not talking about minor changes in the Affordable Care Act. He wasn't even quite conscious of how much change he was proposing. Everybody on that, you know, on that stage was talking about dramatically more, a dramatically larger government role in, uh, in health care which is now just taken for granted, and I believe politically uh, effective and helpful.
0: And you argue not just that Trump will lose in 2020, but that he will bring about, you're quite clear about this, the death of the Republican Party as we know it right now. So politics in Washington starting in 2021 will look more like California, where the Democrats have majorities in in both branches of Congress and in the executive, but aren't there a lot of places in America where the Republicans will win no matter what? The red states. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you
1: can't look. You can't change the Constitution, and that there, they can be a successful, you know, party, you know, you know, in those states. But losing control, you know, nationally, has a has a huge uh, cost for their coalition. Uh, and we'll see how long they're willing to be out of power you know, na- uh, nationally. They are fighting the social modernization you know, of the country. They're fighting the sexual revolution in their current per- budget <laughs> of the federal government. They're trying to get rid of sex education. Their battle uh, they, you know, against the Affordable Care Act, the suit to the Supreme Court, was on contraception. You can't stop stop the growing diversity, the growing multiculturalism. Uh, and all of that uh, moving forward at, at great bank speed, they are fighting it, fighting back, they're producing a party which is concentrated only in the most socially conservative and anti-government anti-immigrant part the uh, part of the electorate. um and they can't survive nationally as a party. They're only gonna get smaller. This, you know this 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 embankment within the Republican party only get the smaller and smaller piece as they go off the cliff and get defeated in this election.
0: We need an economy that works for everyone, not just the rich and well-connected. That should be the message in 2020, says Stan Greenberg, longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. His indispensable new book is R.I.P.G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, and I really do think this is a, a transformative moment.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We're still thinking about the terrorist attack in El Paso, where Patrick Cruzius killed 22 people at a Walmart and injured two dozen more. We're told that the shooter was a loner, obsessed by Mexicans, but like almost all of these attacks carried out by domestic terrorists, the El Paso killings have been treated as a single event. But Charleston, Charlottesville, Christchurch, El Paso, these attacks are connected. And for that, we turn to Kathleen Ballou. She writes for the New York Times op-ed page. She teaches history at the University of Chicago. She's been featured on Fresh Air and PBS Frontline. And she's the author of the book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, all the attackers we're talking about have been described as loners, but you say these attacks are all connected. How?
2: So this is a place where the history of the white power movement can really help us to understand what we're seeing in the present. And I say movement because we're talking about a coalition of people that included a lot of different belief systems, including Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups, skinheads, and other activists. And it also included a lot of different kinds of people, people of both genders, people who lived in rural, urban, and suburban places, people across class and educational backgrounds. Um, And they came together in a movement with one another in the late 1970s, using the aftermath of the Vietnam War to sort of coalesce around common narratives. And one of the key strategies that really brought this movement together was a thing called leaderless resistance. Now, That's pretty easy to understand now in the post-9-11 world because it's essentially cell-style terror, the idea that a few people can work um, in a cell without direct communication with other cells and without direct orders from leadership in the movement, but that all of these cells can be coordinated in action. Cells can be anything from one to, say, 12 people. um, And this strategy was implemented sort of to stymie prosecution and infiltration efforts. But there's been a much larger and, I would argue, more damaging legacy of the strategy of leaderless resistance, which is that it's effectively erased this entire movement as a movement. So what we see instead are a series of stories about lone wolf attackers, acts of violence that are inexplicable and unrelated to each other. We get narratives about perhaps mental illness or personal animus or something, and we miss the very political very deliberate meaning of this violence, which which comes from understanding it as interconnected.
0: And what is the larger goal of all the attackers in these terrorist incidents?
2: One thing that's really important to understand about the white power movement is that within this movement, the end goal is not the act of mass violence itself. The violence is supposed to be a political action that will work these activists believe, to awaken other white people to the cause and bring people into the movement. These acts of mass violence are meant to incite a broader race war.
0: But aren't these people, the most recent ones at least, isolated loners? Dylan Roof, for instance, the Charleston killer, didn't go to meetings, as far as we know, did not was not a member of an organization. And as far as we know, neither did the accused El Paso killer.
2: Yeah. The interesting thing that's happening now is that this movement, which has been using the internet and other computer technologies for a very long time, since the early 1980s, has now reached a level of sort of computer mobilization that is bypassing some of the ways that social relationships used to be very important to this movement for recruitment of new people. So, Dylan Roof, as you say, was a loner who didn't have real-life connections with other activists. Nevertheless, it's really clear that he did have connections that meant a great deal to him with this earlier history of white power activism. And the thing that I always think of is the photograph of Roof wearing a Rhodesian flag patch. The Rhodesia, for listeners who might not be aware, uh, Rhodesia was Zimbabwe before um, a revolution changed it from a minority rule government of white people in power to a more democratic system, which is now Zimbabwe. But Rhodesia, this all happened before Dylan Roof was born. This is an old, old issue for white power activists, but it has huge meaning within that movement. And the fact that he chooses that as an identifier when there have been so many other more recent flashpoints that he might have chosen, is a really clear indicator that he is in communication with other activists and that he does sort of see himself as part of this longer trajectory of of action.
0: These individuals are called white nationalists, but you say that the nation at the heart of white nationalism is not the United States. What is it?
2: It's important to call this the white power movement because white nationalism makes people think of something much less radical. People think that that white nationalism is just sort of overzealous patriotism or injecting whiteness or shoring up whiteness within the body politic of the United States. But the nation at the heart of white nationalism is the Aryan nation. It's imagined as a transnational polity of white people that could be brought together into either a white homeland or eventually kind of an all-white world. Uh, That's an inherently radical and violent project that that is fundamentally opposed to the interests of the United States.
0: Of course, it's crazy to think that a white power uprising, even by heavily armed violent groups could overthrow the United States government, how exactly do they imagine they could do this?
2: This is the million-dollar question, and this is why The Turner Diaries is so important. The Turner Diaries is a dystopian novel that uh, first appeared in a serial in the late 1970s in a prominent white power magazine and then was collected into a, uh, a paperback. Um, and The Turner Diaries lays out the path through which this seemingly impossible thing could happen. And in the book, they describe it as a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant. In other words, how could a fringe movement hope to take down the most militarized super state in world history? And what they lay out is essentially guerrilla warfare, in which acts of violence and sabotage are meant to destabilize power and awaken other white people such that they can eventually tip the balance and achieve an all white world. Now, for those who have read the Turner Diaries, it is a deeply disturbing, but not particularly graceful read. But it's it's enormously important to the movement precisely because it answers this question. It creates the imaginary through which people can envision how this might work. Um, And we can see how it's so important because of its enormous saturation in white power activist circles. It's still cited and used very heavily today. Its language is still used to frame what activists are doing. And in the period that I look at in the 1980s and 90s, it shows up everywhere. It's in bookstores in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. Um, It's kept in stacks of 20 and 30 copies in the bunkhouses of paramilitary training facilities. It's all over the place.
0: And what would you say was uh, the biggest success of the white power movement over the last 50 years?
2: The, the largest and most successful example of an act of mass violence meant to awaken people to the movement is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Um, now, we have a public narrative of that bombing as another of these lone wolf events. Occasionally, we see a more complex story that involves co-conspirators. Um, But usually it's only the people who are tried with Timothy McVeigh. So we're talking about a group of three or four people. The reason that we understand it that way is that there was a huge and very unsuccessful and embarrassing seditious conspiracy trial a few years earlier in 1987, 88, in which the federal government attempted a large scale prosecution of white power activists and came up with acquittals. Um, The trial was hugely embarrassing for the federal government. And in its aftermath, there was a decision made that these crimes would be investigated not as part of a movement, but only as individuals. I think the language was they would make no attempt to tie the crimes to a broader movement. So that's the policy in place at the moment of the Oklahoma City bombing. So from the investigation to the trial, everything is limited by that, that piece of decision-making such that there's never an investigation, much less sort of a coherent change in public understanding that this is the work of a movement. Um, But I spend a full chapter in the book talking about how deeply Timothy McVeigh was immersed in this movement, um, both through social uh, connections and his own beliefs, and how this is really clearly an act of white power violence.
0: You've shown us in your book, Bring the War Home, how the historical roots of this white power movement go back to the 70s and the 80s. Is there anything new about the recent attacks, say El Paso or Charleston?
2: Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, this movement has been online since the early 1980s and in many ways pioneered social network activism before the rest of us had even heard of something like Facebook. Um, Their early message boards were posting things like, um, you know, assassination lists and targets, but also things like recipes and personal ads. So this is a deeply imbricated site of social network activism from the beginning. But what we see now is as those social network spaces have expanded and become um, more sophisticated, these attackers are using things like going viral and using things like the underside of the internet, to connect with one another, to organize, and also to kind of pave the way to future violence. But there's a clear change from the earlier manifestos to the more recent ones that they're starting to contain more and more tactical instruction for future actors. So the latest one in El Paso had information about ammunition, target selection, ear protection, all kinds of things that are in there so that future attackers can use that information to carry out additional violence. That kind of direct use of the manifesto as a messaging tool, I think, is is new.
0: Let's talk about Donald Trump's place in the white power movement. The El Paso Killers' manifesto quoted Trump extensively about an invasion from Mexico. But your history and analysis suggests a different way of understanding Trump's role in white nationalist violence.
2: There are a few different things that are important to understand. One is that the last time this movement turned violent was not under a leftist government. The last time this movement declared war and carried out assassinations and stole military weapons and began a cycle of paramilitary training was in the second term of the Reagan administration, when arguably they stood to benefit from a lot of the policy coming down From the federal government. So the idea that because there's a sympathetic executive, we will see a reduction in this kind of activism and violence um, simply doesn't hold true in the historical record. The other thing that's important to understand is that this kind of a social movement is organized across a, I guess we could think of it as a spectrum of sort of intensiveness. So if you think about a series of concentric circles. What we're talking about in the period that I study is a very small number of people, 10 to 25,000 people in that middle circle who live and breathe this movement. Those are the people who might become violent and a whole bunch of other people who just have their entire lives in this movement. They attend white power churches, they pick each other up from the airport, they provide child care to one another, they get their marital counseling in the movement. Often they live in communities that are entirely within the movement. Outside of that, there's another 150,000 people who aren't that deeply involved, but who regularly attend rallies, purchase the newspapers, send contributions, and do stuff like that. Outside of that, there's another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves buy the newspapers, but they regularly read the newspapers. Now, this is where we have to get a little bit more You have to imagine the next circle, which is people who would never themselves read something that says official newspaper of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, but who might agree with some of the ideas in them, um, especially if they are presented by a friend or if they come to them from someone they trust. That outer, more diffuse circle um, is a place where there is a whole bunch of people who are talking about invasion Mm -hmm. in, in the current moment, who are talking about all kinds of other racist ideas that, that have consequences for people in this movement and beyond. So I think what we need to do is really understand how ideas travel from one place to the other across history. Um, I would also just say that my colleagues uh, who study the early 20th century would tell you that this invasion language certainly isn't new and that we have a long history of thinking about immigrants as, as invading the nation. And there's a lot that history can tell us about strategies that have and have not worked to sort of overcome that idea.
0: So far, we've been talking about men. Is there any place for women in the white power movement, or are they just wives and mothers?
2: This is the biggest surprise to me from the story, because I thought I was going to be writing about paramilitary masculinity. And the thing that, that appeared in the archives is this intense and very deep network of women's relationships that sustains this activism. Now, the women in this movement serve a really important symbolic role and you can you can think about this as simply for activists in the White Power movement, many issues that that people understand as kind of just classic conservatism, for these activists, come down to preservation of the race through the reproduction of white children. So for instance, opposing immigration in the white power movement has to do with the number of white babies versus the number of other babies. Similarly, opposing abortion, opposing gay rights, opposing feminism, in white power discourse, all of this is tied to reproduction and the birth of white children. So so there's a hugely important symbolic role for women. But there's also a material role that women undertook that others have not always seen or taken seriously. Women in the white power movement were doing enormous performative activism in sort of vouching for their husband's credibility and good character. Um, They ran their own quarterlies. They did coupon drives. They did campaigns to support uh, the birth of white children within their own communities. They even created tourist sites where people could go and visit uh, the places where the people that they call white Aryan martyrs had been killed by the federal government. And beyond all of that, if you want to see this social movement, you have to look at women because women are how you can tell that these groups are interconnected. Uh, White power shows up for a very long time as an array of seemingly disconnected forces. But if you look at the actual people who are involved, what you see is, This person's daughter married the leader of that group. These two sisters married these two brothers and cemented an alliance between those groups. And women are how you can sort of see how this all worked.
0: And there's a Christian element here, too, isn't there? What's the relationship between white power and Christian identity?
2: Christian identity is a political theology that became very, very important to this movement in the period that I study and is still around today. Christian identity is the idea that white people are the true chosen people of God and that everyone else, all other races and ethnicities are descended either from Satan or from animals, depending on uh, the doctrine that you're following. And Christian identity is very similar to kind of the broader evangelical groundswell we see in the 1980s, not just on the far fringe, but in kind of mainstream conservative circles. But Evangelicals have the rapture, which is the idea that they will be transported peacefully to heaven before the apocalypse. Christian identity says there is no rapture, that people who believe in this will have to survive the end of days and that they must take up arms to clear the world of non-white people before Christ can return. So what that does is transform this entire uh, political and ideological belief system around white reproduction into a holy war, because now it is a project of faith for these activists to take up arms and engage in race war.
0: Last question. You worked on this book, Bring the War Home, for 10 years. Tell us about your research. It's it's a scary topic.
2: It is. And, you know, of course, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to get the story out, but I, I it's been really a uh, intense experience to see it moving into the center of public debate in in this way over the last few years. The book is based on extensive archival work, as you say, over 10 years. Um, I have three major ephemera collections from the white power movement that include their published and unpublished writings and drawings. Um, And then I also used a lot of declassified government information um, from using the FOIA process from the FBI, the ATF, and elsewhere, And then newspaper searches in the United States and um, in Mexico and Nicaragua, because I have one chapter deals with mercenary soldiers who go to Nicaragua and other places in Central America to fight communism, quote unquote. It's really interesting how much this movement produced. And the three major archives I look at from the white power movement are very different in character. One was compiled by a journalist, one by an archivist who sent around a questionnaire to the groups and said, you know, send me any materials you have lying around and one by participant observers who pretended to be part of the group and then just picked up materials as they attended meetings. Significantly, all three of those places have basically the same materials, so I do have sort of a sense of coverage of what was going on in this time for these activists.
0: Kathleen Ballou's book is Bring the War Home the white power movement in paramilitary America. It's out now in paperback and it's indispensable to understanding what's going on right now. Kathleen, thank you for your work and thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. We spoke with Stacey Abrams about her life and her book, Lead from the Outside, in March of this year. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, But you did accomplish anyway, some amazing things in that race. So first I wanna talk about the votes you got, despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history?
3: So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any, any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes, but what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%, but to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton.
0: How did you do it?
3: Well, one is that I believe what I say. I I believe diversity matters, and I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either first-hand knowledge or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities or worse what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic and we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway
0: for their participation and it worked and the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor
3: no <laughs> so one thing i talk about in in the book and lead from the outside is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure and i by my nature am a systems person i believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged but i also believe that poverty is immoral and i believe that communities are too often kept distant from their power by being convinced that their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active, (laughs) but (laughs) I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector.
0: You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach?
3: I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know, and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So for example, when I became democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me, and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the monies necessary to hire them. I hired a a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who are absolutely qualified for the jobs they had. But I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do.
0: So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people... Uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama, on the Democratic ticket. How come the Republican won?
3: Because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor and he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job, and so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed, but if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think
0: it's a really good guess. So let's talk about Fair Fight Action.
3: So Fair Fight Action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, Democracy is ours. I am an American, I am entitled to have my voice heard, but so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the the direction they want to see for our state or for our country that they are heard and in georgia they were not and so i want there to be a fair fight and let's be clear no matter what happens i will never win the office of governor in 2018 it won't happen but my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit and that is that we fix the system itself fair fight action focuses on three things registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting. Making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're going to do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work.
0: And where do we stand on that today?
3: So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tête-à-tête with the Secretary of State and the governor's office or technically Secretary of State's office in the state of Georgia, they are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, they're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, we will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, we have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff and his general counsel just months before he became governor.
0: Now, uh, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what uh, What do you think are your chances in court on this one?
3: Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements, uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access you know the issues that we face and they, they tend to approach it individually we are looking at it systemically we are taking the brown versus the board of education approach which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in georgia people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote and so our argument is that we believe that the de facto Denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act. And then Terry Sewell, who is pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, they're all paying attention to what we're doing. So I do think, whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point.
0: Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now?
3: So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent, and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties and Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina and across the country, including in California and other places. There are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country.
0: So let's, let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. Um, it has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one?
3: Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the, the title of the chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and, and marginalization happens in a lot of ways, you can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity, or religion, or class, or simply you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you have gotta have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy, but you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget <laughs> our dreams. Ambition animates you, it fires you up, and it's unsettling but we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture. And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. The birds are
0: chirping with happiness. <laughs> <clears throat> One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker, this is kind of surprising. What do you mean?
3: <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking meals. It's basically, how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff? A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in, how do you figure out your own way inside? Uh, you know, in years past, it would have been called guerrilla warfare. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity, when you first look at these doorways and gateways, there may seem to be no possible point of entry. And that's why we have to figure out our own codes and our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside how I've both in the the sort of computer science and video games parlance but also in the very you know pedestrian physical idea of just hacking through when you've got to slice through if you've ever worked on a farm when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way so you're going to have to fight your way through.
0: In your book you say you reject the idea of work-life balance Can you explain why? Because
3: work-life balance is a lie. It is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something, and you need to return whatever it is they sold you. I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and started companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I figured out this amazing, you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart. It's to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work.
0: You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes.
3: So um, I, I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office. And that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner, in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one, in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules was we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, But our point was this. We'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with. They were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values, we could disagree. You could have a difficult personality, but you could not devalue who we were. You could not treat us as less than real and human and whole. And so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person the money wasn't worth it
0: i want to ask a little about your family you have the most wonderful acknowledgments and it's clear you have an amazing family i'm especially interested in your parents because they started in mississippi and i'm i'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in mississippi could you tell us a little about them
3: My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known. And I've met some really amazing people. But my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. She's who poor people made fun of. Uh, My mother's life story is, especially her younger years, it's like a Dickens novel. every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. What they did was not let their humble beginnings, in some ways, their tragic beginnings. They didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of. You know, my father is dyslexic. He didn't learn to read functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he has this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full-time and they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-k. My mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing and I saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian but also as a pastor. I saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work, but he didn't benefit from it. And then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers. And they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day. And as long as they are not disappointed in me, I know I'm doing the right thing.
0: One last thing, the amazing thing about your book, Is that it doesn't say vote for me because i can do this it says you can do this even if you're an outsider
3: i wrote this book in part because i was giving talks to different groups i was i was actually in the middle of my campaign i just started my campaign for governor it was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there and there are a lot of political memoirs I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me and I am I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party, a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations (laughs) were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and
0: tell folks, here's where it is, come on through. And that's what I tried to do. Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next.
3: John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.